Hello. You are now listening to The Lives of Writers. And today's show is a little different. Today's show is the Autofocus Books Holiday Special, featuring readings and interviews with authors Aaron Birch, Christine Langley Mahler, Danny Kane, and Holly Pileski, and hosted by me, Michael Wheaton, publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast. And before it gets started, I should mention that if you feel compelled to help support Autofocus Books and the lives of writers this year or next, you can do so in a few ways, such as buying our books or your very own Lives of Writers t-shirt over at autofocuslit.com books, or sign up for the newsletter coming next year at autofocuslit.com email, or maybe rate or review the show wherever you listen, or just share it with some friends. All right, that's the advertisement. Here's the special. Okay, welcome to the Autofocus Books Holiday Special, where we will be spotlighting the work of four Autofocus Books authors and putting them briefly in conversation together. First, a little context. The readings you're going to hear and the brief interviews afterward were recorded in person on November 5th at an Airbnb in Lawrence, Kansas, where the night before we assembled from several states for an event at the legendary The Raven Bookstore to celebrate the release of Christine Langley Mahler's new book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin. Reading along with Christine that night were Aaron Birch, author of the essay collection A Kind of In-Between and editor of our indirect How to Write a Novel anthology, and Holly Pileski, whose book Cleave came out with us last year, and owner of The Raven, and author of this year's poetry collection Picture Window, Danny Kane. Much like today, I had the pleasure of introducing the event and each of the authors. But I'll try not to take up too much time here, except to say first, we had a really great time in Lawrence, just getting a chance to share space, thoughts, ideas, and our stories with each other. And this episode, I hope, is able to recreate a little bit of that feeling of what I think makes Autofocus special. I mean, it can get about as real as it gets on the page, and decisions made there do affect real life. And sometimes that effect can actually be pretty good. And other than that, I'll just say, it's a hard time of year, at the end of a hard year, and next year, and election year, I mean, we're probably in for it. But I hope there are things about it that are pretty good like this song for today's special and the ones we use for our normal episode music for the show, which is provided by Autofocus Books author Mike Nagel. And of course, I hope you enjoy the show. Our first reader for today's special is Aaron Birch. His book, A Kind of In-Between, is an essay collection about turning 40 and getting divorced and looking back on childhood and growing up. One of the longer essays in the collection is called Landmarks, it's about meeting a biological relative for the first time during a cross-country road trip. So here's Aaron now, reading the first third of Landmarks. Landmarks. I walked into the Applebee's in Orem, Utah, and though I'd never been there before, this Applebee's, this city, it felt immediately comfortably familiar. It looked exactly like every Applebee's I'd ever been in. I went straight to the bar like I could have blindfolded. It was where it always is, past the hostess stand at last warning before your journey toward getting a drink, waiting for you like a minotaur at the center of a labyrinth of concentric circles of booths, then tables, then high tops. 
Only a few nights before, I'd done the same in an Applebee's inside a Best Western, somewhere in middle of nowhere, Nebraska, which, after a long day of driving through Nebraska, seemed like most of Nebraska. I sat down, grabbed a menu, looked around. I realized something looked off. It didn't actually look exactly like every other Applebee's I'd ever been in. Three or four groups sitting together throughout the restaurant, but no one other than myself at the bar itself. In that middle-of-nowhere Nebraska Best Western Applebee's, I'd been lucky to get a seat at all. We're the most popular bar in town, the bartender told me when I squeezed into the only available seat at the bar and expressed surprise at how busy they were. There's really only two others, she said, and we're the only one that serves anything other than Bud and Miller and Coors, like she'd taken one look at me and knew I was going to order an IPA. This Orem, Utah Applebee's bar didn't even have a bartender. It was barely technically a bar for that matter. There weren't any taps for beers on draft. There weren't any beer or whiskey branded bar runners. There wasn't a collection of whiskey and vodka and tequila and rum and lime juice and orange juice and margarita mix and sour mix for shots or well drinks or strawberry lime margaritas or pair of jacks or Captain Bahama Mamas. It all looked like a movie set, like the set designer knew what an Applebee's bar looked like, but no idea how to make it look lived in, to make it look real. I was in Utah because I was driving across the country from where I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to where I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, to spend the summer with friends and family. I'd spent the previous few nights in Denver, staying with a friend, hanging out and drinking, going to see Red Rocks Park and Amphitheater and Buffalo Bill Cody's grave. And before that, in Nebraska, I'd gone a little out of my way to see Chimney Rock and Carhenge, a recreation of Stonehenge made entirely of old cars, all standing on end and painted gray. The kinds of landmarks, both man-made and natural, awesomely kitschy and literally awesome, as in breathtaking, as in inspiring of actual awe, that make a road trip a road trip. And I was in this Applebee's because Orem, Utah was where my youngest half-sister lived. And after an impromptu small road trip detour for dinner with the first person I've ever met who I am related to by blood, I wanted a beer. And when I'd Googled bars near me, this Applebee's was what popped up, which felt cheesy, but also perfect. Almost three years before, I was driving home from work one day and my phone rang. Even though I was driving, and even though, like most people, I almost never answer my phone anymore, not when it's someone I know, and especially not when it's an unknown number, when the screen lights up with a number instead of the name already saved as a contact assigned to that number, I answered it. I'm not sure why. Hello, a woman's voice on the other end answered. Is this Aaron Birch? Yes. I looked up and the light had turned green. I started driving while holding the phone to my ear. Born February 23rd, 1978 in Ojai, California, she asked. Um, yeah. Do you know why I'm calling, she asked. And the thing was, given those questions, given how she'd started the conversation, I was pretty sure I did. Two years earlier, I'd received a similarly out-of-nowhere mysterious Facebook message. 
quote, I am seeking an Aaron M. Birch born on your date of birth in California who was adopted. If you are he and would like family information, I can put you in touch with them. I'd X'd out of my Facebook tab, a little stunned, and then ignored the message and pretended like I'd never seen it in the first place. And more or less, I went on with my life, albeit while purposefully not revisiting Facebook for months at least. Is it about me being adopted? I asked the woman on the phone. As often as not, I forget. I don't really think of being adopted as part of who I am. Or maybe I think of it as so much a part of me as to take it for granted. And then one day, out of nowhere, I got a Facebook message from someone saying they could put me in touch with family. And then a couple years after that, on my way home from work, I was on the phone with someone, Julie, she'd said her name was, who was telling me my biological mom was looking for me. Hold on, I told her. Let me... I'm driving. I'm going to pull over into this parking lot. Hold on a minute. I pulled over into a church parking lot, parked and turned off my car. She asked if I had any questions. I wasn't sure if I did, but asked what she could tell me. And for the next five or ten minutes, or maybe half an hour, I don't really know. It felt like a blur. She told me all kinds of stuff. She said my bio parents ended up staying together. They got married later the same year I was born. They had five more kids. So... She said, you have five full-blood siblings, which was really just a rewording of saying they'd stayed together and had five more kids, but it felt like new information when she said it like that. She told me they stayed LDS and still lived in California, which is where I was born and adopted and lived until I was five or six. She gave me my bio mom's home address, her email, her Facebook page, and her phone numbers, both home and cell. I wrote everything down on the back of a pay stub I found in my glove box, and then she said it was now up to me how to proceed, and then we hung up, and then I kind of just freaked the fuck out. So that was Aaron Birch with the first third of Landmarks from his essay collection, A Kind of In-Between. And next we'll hear from Christine Langley-Mahler. Her book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin, came out on Halloween. It contains three essays called Ghost Watch, Ghost Choke, and Ghost Heart, in which the author tracks the signs and symbols she keeps seeing in her daily life over the course of a year and reckons with what it might mean for her as a mother, sibling, and self. And so here's Christine reading a few subsections of the first essay, Ghost Watch. Snake. When a snake ambled over my side of the path behind our neighborhood in New Mexico, I did not speak. I took a short, quick intake of breath and pointed. My husband quickly asked, what? But the word did not come quickly enough to convey the specific danger. I could only gesture and hope caution was obvious. The snake was nearly four feet long, yellow and brown, thicker than a garter, but thinner than my wrist. I checked for a rattle as it re-entered the desert and saw none. Immediately, I wondered what it meant. I let the snake sit with me overnight, wanting to see if my dreams brought any assistance. But the only dream I could recall upon waking involved a shower, 
Oreo Thins, and a person from the internet whom I had never met off screen. Snake symbolism is older than the Garden of Eden, as universal as a kiss. A snake generally represents transformation, its sloughing and shedding a natural depiction of life cycle. But a snake can also mean transmutation. Even if multiple venom bites course through my bloodstream, my body can purify the poison into something that cannot kill me anymore. I think I am not supposed to remove the venom. I am supposed to let it change me. Or else let my inner workings, which know more than my conscious, change the venom into something painless. At Pecos two weeks earlier, I had found a shed snakeskin on my side of the path. The removal of the old self first, the reborn self next, bookending. I need to be reminded that I have changed because inside I am still 19, certain of my decisions, emphatic in my certainty, afraid of what happens if I am not, unwilling to bend, but gritting my lock-kneed teeth. Discard. To admit the truth is a kind of emptying, water streaming from a jar onto desert soil, briefly visible and undeniable, but soaking into the ground so quickly that if there were no witness, others might doubt its existence. Yet if I watch the spot, that unexpected gift wakens seeds which thought they may not germinate. Something comes to life when I admit the truth, even if I am the only one who knows which patch of dirt to watch for the proof, either blooming new growth or revealing the concealed old. I wonder at myself every time I stooped to the dry gullies of previously inhabited land, plucking up broken bits of pottery, fascinated by ancient trash. I must look so silly to the ghosts, prizing up a chunk of discard to marvel at a thumb of pattern, the curve of a lip. Who cares what comprises the whole when the smallest piece is a surprise, made precious by its separation? The ghosts can see beneath the soil, down through the layers of sediment where the larger pieces of evidence have been buried over centuries, but those, too, are incomplete and broken. The all-punched hole on a pottery shard moves me to tears, imagining how its owner once found a pot important enough to mend. And yet one day the vessel must have inevitably become irretrievable, the crack widening until the pot was finally discarded. The pot has borne a mark into the future that it was once loved, visible all these centuries later. How many of these shards were once part of a mended vessel? How many were treasured? How many were simply kept out of utility, killing time while waiting for the replacement to arrive? Pattern. I listen to my dreams now, but only because a symbol had to keep appearing before I realized I would have to subdue it if I ever wanted peace. A recurring nocturnal knot laced itself anew every time I closed my eyes, months thickening around it in a crust until its bulk attracted my eye from the corner. This grimy lump must be dissected. When the bear would lumber out of the canyon in my dreams, I already knew what would happen. I would acknowledge the bear and try to evacuate. It would pursue, but never fast enough to catch me, just fast enough to remain an interested threat. I would fumble with a door handle as the bear picked up its pace. 
I would slip inside at the last minute, racked with that terrible, dichotomous relief of temporariness. The bear would slam its paws on the door, and so I would find a cabinet, a box in which to hide, waiting for the inevitable shifting scene, a sort of self-preservation by my subconscious that would move me into a new entanglement. When a pattern is known outside dream life, it can be corrected, understood, reframed, altered. But a repeated dream ghost must be endured because it cannot be controlled. After many iterations, I came to recognize what I was trying to tell myself. Something in my core is unsettled, and I have been avoiding it. I was embarrassed that it had taken me that long to see that I dreamt of a bear in pursuit because when I had actually encountered a bear at 19 in Montana, I was afraid I no longer knew myself. I dreamt about that bear for 19 more years, a talisman representing the times I ignored myself in favor of the self I wanted to project. Perhaps I needed 19 years to fully understand the symbol before I could see it again outside of dreams, in the canyon and recognized the bear's disinterest in pursuing me. I woke the bear up with my voice echoing in the canyon, and it left me. Now I hold that memory like an amulet, warding off the need for a bear ghost to return to me again. The Capricorn moon eclipsed the night before I saw the bear at Bandelier. The astrologer told me that lunar eclipses, when the moon swallows the sun, were particularly powerful for me as a Cancerian, that I was also born within days of a lunar eclipse, which compounded its effects. Lunar eclipses are moments of transformation. I watched the moon emerge from a static cloud veil as it climbed into full light, and then the moon receded so fast it seemed impossible to believe the world was spinning that quickly. I read my tarot cards, The Hanged Man, Needing to Trust Instability, and when I looked at the moon, it emerged from behind the clouds once more, veiling itself again, even as I watched. The bear revealed itself in the canyon the next morning. Is the moon a talisman or an amulet? Is my quartz pushing away clarity or bringing it to me? Am I holding a chunk of moon that will dissolve into a bear? So that was Christine Langley-Mahler reading a few sections toward the end of the essay Ghost Watch from her book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin. And next, we'll hear from Danny Kane, whose book of poems about domesticity and distance, Picture Window, came out with us last year. Danny will also be reading some new poems, and I'll just let him take it over from here. Picture Window is a book about coming to terms with domesticity and then kind of having it taken away. So I'm going to read two sets of poems from Picture Window um, with some new stuff in between. But the first set is the coming to terms with the unsettling and dreamy domesticity. First poem is Picture Window. Watching the stump grinder spit to life, I realize the dream was never tight jeans and cigarettes atmospheric fog from grates under streetlights. Let someone else make out against a graffitied wall. The kids can have the cramped restaurants that feel like secrets, the mystifying dishes that aren't cooked but invented. Take the A-train, 
really, you can have it. All I need is a picture window so I can sip coffee and watch a machine chew the fuck out of a big-ass stump. This poem is called In the Living Room Watching Travel Shows with Beautiful Cinematography Again. Barcelona, sure. At this point, I'd even take Texas Roadhouse. Are you celebrating anything tonight? Yes, we just burned the rest of our masks. Of course, I'd take a fast train anywhere. My latest adventure was switching milks. I longed to be confused by strange menus, but I'd happily settle for not knowing where the light switches are. Sunday morning. A squeaky tennis ball for dogs appears in the bathroom. I have never seen it. We don't have a dog. Um, this is a poem I don't think I've ever read before, so I'm honored to share it for the first time with, uh, with the podcast audience. It's called It Might Be Compact, But It's More Spacious Than You Can Imagine. It's my 375-square-foot home, which is a phrase I took from the wall at an Ikea. It might be compact, but it's more spacious than you can imagine. It's my 375-square-foot home. It's hard to wash these dishes when they're nailed to the table. Also, the water doesn't work. Turn the handle and watch the silence pour down the drain, which is plugged. Every night, I wipe strangers' footprints off the black composite floor, a parade of Payless and Skechers bleeding into smudge. How could this couch possibly surrender to sag already? How could an apartment so small feel so empty? How do I pronounce all of these names? I close the curtains. The city, like the bricks, is wallpaper. All right, I've, uh, I'm going to share some new stuff. Um, this first poem is forthcoming in the boiler, thanks to encouragement and beta reading from my friend Todd. Uh, hi, Todd. This is called Marriage. When you're married, every poem can be called marriage. According to Catherine Lacey, a marriage continues because it continues. Jack Gilbert says, we can break through marriage into marriage. Even with all the marriages that have ever happened, there's only ever the one you're in. A friend once told me marriage is like a wheelbarrow. I don't think he meant it in a Williams sense. Doesn't matter if he did, since marriage is only like marriage. Uh, here's a poem that's, um, well, as we record, it's coming out tomorrow and had, as you listen, it came out earlier this month and had, uh, this is called the bacon of the future. This is me again, stealing a commercial slogan for the sake of poetry. But the slogan in this case is the bacon of the future tastes better than the bacon of the past, which is uh, an Oscar Mayer advertising campaign. The bacon of the future. The bacon of the future is kosher. Don't ask how, it just is. The bacon of the future drives a Subaru. The bacon of the future is so local, so grass-fed, it comes from a pig you didn't even know you had living in your backyard. Oh yeah, in the bacon of the future's future, you have a backyard too. You can pour the grease from the bacon of the future down the drain without alarming your landlord. You can also use it to water most houseplants. The bacon of the future can help you afford a down payment. The bacon of the future has negative calories like celery. The bacon of the future is not AI generated. AI is bacon of the future generated. The bacon of the future knows why your wife is acting kind of distant today. 
The bacon of the future can diffuse a toddler tantrum with hurt locker precision. The bacon of the future never gets tired of being a dad. The bacon of the future's therapist asks the bacon of the future for advice. The bacon of the future will help you be able to look in the mirror. The bacon of the future is never your fault. The bacon of the future is coming. The bacon of the future is now. Uh, the, the manuscript that these come from is tentatively called Jewish American Dream. And there's a kind of a skeleton of poems that are based on um, like literal dreams I've been having, um, often revolving around Jewish celebrities. But this is stuff that I kind of scribble in the middle of the night and turn into poetry form. I'm going to read two of them, number one and number three. Jewish American Dream number one. The other one was Adam Levine. Today I drove by a big store called Public Lands. Public Lands was closed. Lately, my dreams have been about gas stations. And last night's, they had rearranged the shelves and I couldn't find the Cosmic Brownies or the Diet Coke. The cashier asked me if Diet Pepsi was okay. He looked like Paul Rudd. Actually, he was Paul Rudd in a polo shirt and a name tag. No, Paul, I don't care if you're one of two Jews ever named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. I don't care if the American spirit is a carton of cigs or if public lands is a big box store. Diet Pepsi is never okay. I've seen people slapped for less. Jewish American dream number three. We're going to do this fucker. I googled Joey Chestnut Jewish. He is not. But he does hold the world record in matzo balls. 78 in 8 minutes. He's got pastrami too. 25 Katz's half sandwiches in 10 minutes. Don't forget corned beef, also his. 20 eight-ounce sandwiches in the time it takes you to get the guy's attention behind the counter at Corky and Lenny's. This is the shit I usually read before bed, before I sleep long enough for Joey to eat 2,976 Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs. I don't count sheep, I count sandwiches. Oh, Joey. Jewish in appetite, if not upbringing, scowling after being told this year's contest is canceled then prowling Coney Island to find the foes he must vanquish yet again. He simply refused to let a year go by without celebrating this disgusting country to excess in the most American possible way, eating till bursting of that which immigrants created. And this last one from the, the new book is called A Sonnet If It Kills Me. The epigraph for this is Why Weep? Tomorrow will murder all of you which is something that a Russian seminary student said to a Jew on the second morning of the pogrom in Kishinev in April 1903. A sonnet if it kills me. Instead, laugh. Instead, let your son do what he wants for once. Instead, withdraw as much as you can from an ATM and put it all into a tip jar somewhere. Instead, take two edibles and see what happens. Put the fucking phone down. Put it behind your tire before you back out. Break into a rich person's pool. Liberate the zoo. Liberate the prison. Liberate the Walmart gun section and throw it all into a lake. Light some red hats on fire. You are a stranger in a strange land? Good. L'chaim. Light the police station on fire before they can light you on fire. Sing it. There will be feasting and dancing in Jerusalem next year. Sing it. In every generation, they rise against us to exterminate us. Or don't. Instead, sing a new song.
I'll close with two more from Picture Window. Um, so the, the kind of autofocus, autobiography element of this book is that immediately once I had come to term with domesticity, we entered a kind of uncomfortable and awkward long distance relationship portion of, of my family life where my wife moved far away with my son for several months because of a job, um, leaving me in an empty apartment. So these are two poems from the era which the rug of domesticity was like literally swept from under my feet. This first one is inspired by both my friend, collaborator and photographer Tara Ray uh, and some images she has created and Frank O'Hara's line, um, all I want is a room up there with you in it. So this is called A House With No Furniture. No ghost the cat sees, no incorrect light switch, no houseplant with eyes, no toy train turned tragedy, no pizza sliding to the floor, stringing guts across the cabinet, no pile of boxes, each labeled disappointment, no matter how many times I write blah, 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 no moments to prepare me, the only furniture left in here, the shadows on the walls. I didn't understand what Frank said about the room and you in it until there was a room, but not you. Finally, here's long distance relationship. My relationship with distance is too long, like the flight from there to here. As I bent over his car seat to say goodbye in the departures lane, he said, I don't like you, daddy. Your shrug was neither question nor answer. How could I prepare for the nighttime parking lots, drive throughs sad groceries, arriving at a house where you no longer live, but somehow I still do? What silence. Every toddler day, I longed for quiet, but without him, this place is like an airport sandwich. All that's left in his room is an empty cardboard house. I tried. I don't fit in there. So that was Danny Kane with some selections from his autofocus book, Picture Window, and some new poems. Finally, we'll be hearing from Holly Pileski. Holly's essay collection, Cleave, came out with us last year. It's a book of works written to the daughter she placed up for adoption. Holly will be reading in entirety her essay from Cleave called, I Keep Meaning to Write About the Day You Were Born. I keep meaning to write about the day you were born. A birth mother doesn't say she gave up her child for adoption. We say we placed our children up, careful with our diction because giving up means something different, something we are trying each day to avoid. When people ask why I did it, I feel like it's a trick question with no right answer. Despite my fierce urge not to explain, I sputter and say I wasn't the best person to raise you. That is the truest sentence I know, and also the hardest to say. I am not the most capable mother to parent the child I made. This was difficult to admit then, 13 years ago. It still is now. I am not the best woman to raise you into someone who will be better than I am. I don't know what I mean by better. I think I mean more forgiving. I am not good at forgiving. I am good at resentment and remorse. 
forgiveness. I know the definition of the word, but I can't remember a time I've practiced it. I have boys I kept, and I wonder if that's the universe's compromise with me, how I can be a mother without forgetting the girl I didn't keep. There were six Mother's Days between your birth and Brandon's. 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. Nearly seven years I lived in the body of a mother with listless arms. I'm not saying in those years I tried to forget you, but I tried to stop remembering you. I could not forget you any more than I could forgive myself for trying to. I think forgetting and forgiveness are tied to each other, or at least I hear people say forgive and forget. I used to have an impeccable memory. I recited 132 Bible verses in four days once, and because of it, won a huffy bike. Now I misplace my glasses, my keys, my phone each day. Sometimes my fingers shake, and I think it is the absence of you twitching through me. My body remembering that it held you once, cradled you in my womb, then my arms. I remembered that on those six Mother's Days, how warm your little body was the day you were born. The Catholics believe in penance for your sins, which I never understood completely. I am not Catholic, but sacred was the first language I knew. Penance, I think, must be actions towards forgiveness. Sometimes I wonder if all these trips to the zoo and the children's museum and putt-putt golf are my own actions toward forgiveness. Like I'm trying to prove that I can be a mother now that I've wedged space between me and you. Like those six Mother's Days were me incubating, becoming for my boys what I couldn't be for you. When I looked up penance, I read about self-flagellation. That's when a person punishes herself by whipping her own back. It is a voluntary punishment to atone for some wrongdoing. I wonder if writing to you, this unmanageable task of putting words to sorrow, is my self-flagellation. I think what I'm saying is that I keep hoping you will forgive me. When I first sat down to write to you, it was to exercise this grief from my body, to pull it through my throat in long, ropey blood vessels. I pulled and pulled until they pooled on the floor in giant piles, wet and heaving red cords I had never seen in the light. When I stepped back from them, aghast at all that had lived spooled inside me, it felt like I would never swallow again. I felt like that before, when your second half-brother was born. When the anesthesia wore off, I came to and wondered where I was. When I heard the cry of a baby, I winced, knowing a nurse would bring the baby to me, and knowing I would hold the baby close to my breast, our skin steaming where we touched, and knowing it was temporary. You see, I thought he was you. I keep meaning to write about the day you were born. It's been a task on my office whiteboard for months. But when I think of how it felt to hold you and know I had 48 hours to change my mind, to keep you, it still feels like I'll black out. I remember how small your fingernails were, how your mouth yawned open when you woke, how you rooted toward my nipple. When the nurses and the lactation consultant advised me how to feed you, I kept explaining that I am not your mother, just your birth mother. While they refilled my ice chips and shuffled around on the polished floor with squeaky shoes, I lay there holding you, 
and it was as if the slow speed of you opening your fingers would be how time worked for us. For those deciding hours, that's how time moved. Only the hours I slept were quiet. All the other ones, my mind kept turned over keeping you, over and over, over. Not one of the scenarios I constructed were feasible. Feasible, maybe, but nowhere near ideal. For either of us, I mean. The feasible ones had us in my parents' basement, my family babysitting you while I worked a shitty job or two trying to get ahead. The feasible ones had me gasping for air outside of that house, just like I had been doing while you grew inside me. The feasible ones had you passed around from person to person who wasn't your mother. I wondered if you would wait for me to get home and coo at long last in my arms, or if you would believe someone who held you more than I did was your mother. If it would be like that, I'd rather find you the mother I couldn't be, which I had. She was next door, waiting out 48 hours, hoping to God I wouldn't change my mind. I don't think I'm going to write that essay about the day you were born after all. I just wrote what I could. There are parts of me I can't tell you because they can't be pulled from my body. They have melted into my throat, retreated into the lining of my womb, settled into the bones of my feet. I can tell you that I had to get out of that hospital as quickly as possible. I had to wait out the rest of those hours away from you. Karen picked me up from the hospital and we went to a movie. Must love dogs. It was brainless and stupid, and I kept looking down at my hospital band, wishing I had cut it off. It said mother on it. Sometimes I see snippets of your dad's sermons on social media and think about how weird it must be to believe in God. I mean, I did two once, I remember. I fell asleep to Jack Hyle's sermons on cassette when I was your age, went to a regular Baptist church. Fundamental means forming a necessary base or core of central importance. My mother told me to apologize to our church for making you, and I said, don't you mean ask God for forgiveness? But that wasn't what she meant. When I moved away from home, 10 days after your birth, I left everything I knew behind, including my religion. I wouldn't say I lost it as much as I abandoned it. What I believe in now is friends who let me cry into cocktails while I give voice to all this I never said before. Now I believe in the pursuit of forgiveness, in the endless grasping to be good enough, to be loved, to be understood, to feel okay. It's hard to get all this in when someone asks, why'd you do it? It's difficult to articulate to anyone who can't imagine giving her child away that I also couldn't imagine giving my child away. Sometimes people like me end up in circumstances we never thought we would. I gave you away, and I haven't given up. I initially ended that last sentence with yet, but I deleted it. I deleted it because I know I won't give up now. I didn't know that at first. I didn't even know it a decade later. But in writing these letters to you, I'm coming to some conclusions. For example, that I am forgivable. I am making a church of healing people, building a sanctuary with words. I am doing this without forgetting you. I am remembering you more than I ever allowed myself before. I see the shape of your newborn fingernails in the silt on my keyboard while I type. 
I remember your young, earnest voice, that time you called me on the phone. I can still hear it all these years later. I remember the space between your voice and mine. I remember that I had both nothing and so much to say. So that was Holly Pileski with the essay from her book Cleave called I Keep Meaning to Write About the Day You Were Born. And for our next segment, we had each author prepare one or two questions for one of the other authors about their reading. First, you'll hear Aaron Birch answering a question from Christine Langley Mahler, then Christine answering one from Holly Pileski, then Danny answering a question from Aaron, and Holly answering one from Danny. I'll let the clips roll with a little break between them, and then I'll sign off. But for now, thanks for listening. Here's a little conversation. All right. So in your essay excerpt, as a suburbanite, I was very happy to hear a lot of places I know called out. You've got Applebee's, you're naming Bud and Coors and Best Westerns and Facebook and the use of, you know, recognizable brands. You know, it's it's both, you know, what a writer does to make specificity to kind of like, you know, call out those things that people will recognize. But also it's kind of a comfort. And in this essay where you're being disarmed by information, you know, kind of having something that's known and something that's duplicable, something that is, you know, a business that you can find in just about anywhere. I, I guess my question is about like the deliberate choice to do that. Was it deliberate or are they so ingrained in you? Or did you just want to use those brands as markers for yourself to kind of ground yourself in place? Yeah, I, I think I think probably a little bit of both, like um, a little bit part of, for me, certainly part of being on a road trip is that, is the brands of it too. And and part of travel and part of being a road trip around America is like, I mean, I never eat more fast food than when I'm on a road trip, right? And so like Wendy's and uh, and food and places and, and Applebee's and a Best Western is just like part of being on a road trip and then also you try to maybe eat somewhere like unique to the place but then also you're driving through a big swath of the country that's like you know Hardee's is the only option and you're like that's not even really what I want but I'm I need to eat now and so some of it is just what feels like a road trip and then part of it as I say in the essay it was sort of like I had just kind of had this disorienting although kind of amazing dinner and kind of wanted to do something cheesy but but familiar and comfortable and that I wasn't trying to like eat somewhere special and and enjoy the unique experience of it like I kind of wanted the blandness of like oh in Applebee's this is great um and then in edits I I changed this but the original sort of like opening to the essay was and it's called landmarks and there's a line or two something about how like you know on these on this road trip i stopped and saw all of these americana landmarks but the one that's most in my mind as a landmark is this applebee's and so part of that was just like literally in life was like 
yeah, Car Hinge was dope, but like, and Spiral Jetty that I went to the next morning was amazing, but also kind of the most vivid landmark is, is this Applebee's, weirdly. Yeah. Does it make it weird to like revisit Applebee's in other cities now? Like, you know, go, you're going back to the site, which is ostensibly it looks the same as, you know, the one that you were in. It's not at all purposeful, but I don't know if I've been in one since. <laughs> um, and so maybe it's a little like, you know, keep it in, keep it in amber as like this. Uh, that's where I went after this moment in my life. And, and, and so now just like hold on to it as such. Uh, Christine, I really enjoyed your reading, um, so much of it. I wrote down a lot of things in this notebook, as I do, but um, you were talking about how a snake can also mean transmutation, and you were using this this snake through line, like literally a snake, but also that shedding of skins and that becoming someone new. Um, and you talked about, I really liked what you said about, I need to be reminded that I have changed because inside I am still 19. Um, and I wanted to see if you would talk about that. And not that you are, of course, still 19, but there's something of you that clings onto that, right? There's something familiar there that you haven't wrestled with. And you even said something in my core is unsettled and I'm avoiding it. Um, so tell me about writing and how that like exorcised demons for you or what it brought to light or how you changed through it or what skins you saw yourself shedding? Oh, man. I mean, you know, the writing of this book and the revisiting of the events in the book really were bringing me toward the I, I was thinking a lot about snakes. <laughs> I mean, not just because I kept seeing them, but also because they're so interesting. They are constantly shedding a skin, but their core remains the same. And so if we can't change our cores, and we can always just grow a new skin, but we also understand that that's going to leave. I mean, if you think of that as, you know, the iterations of yourself, what, how can we change part of our core? And that's where I was, the idea of transmutation, where it's like, you know, the, the idea was if you get a snake venom bite, like, yeah, you can put an anti-venom in to try to pull it out. Or if the venom is small enough, you can let it go into your bloodstream and it will you hope that what's good inside you will kind of kill it away, but like it just dissolves and stays inside you. And so the idea of trying to change part of who you are or to allow the pains or the, the growth parts to, to stay in your core, even as you shed the parts that you don't like. And that's, you know, eventually that's what you're hoping to do anyway, um, or what I was thinking toward with the writing of this book as I thought about the things about myself that I knew I needed to change and the things about myself I didn't want to change and the things about myself that were changing anyway. And so, I mean, the whole book is kind of the shedding of a skin. I mean, that was where I got the, I mean, I got the title because I was thinking about the year that happened there. And I mean, don't we all shed a version of ourselves every year? Sometimes we shed more than one a year, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think transmutation kind of gave me a, something to hold on to rather than just thinking, oh, well, if I, if I don't shed it, then what happens? What happens if I'm, you know, still poisoned in the core? Well, maybe the good parts will change it. I was really fascinated by what you were saying about what parts of you remain and what parts shed. And you said in writing this book that was naturally happening. Can you be a little bit more specific about what parts of you you hoped to shed and what parts you did shed and what rebirths you had through the process of the book? 
Sure. I mean, you know, the book, it wasn't until I finished it, until after it was published, until I started talking about it, that I realized a lot of what's happening in this book is love and the fear of being loved and not being loved for who you are. And I think that a lot of the fears that I was carrying were fears that, you know, if I grew forward or if, you know, my family grew forward, you know, my my children, my husband, my siblings, my parents, you know, that the love would not be carried with it, that my love wouldn't be seen or their love wouldn't be seen in me. And I think that with the writing of the book, I was trying to find a way to hold that love within, even though my my conscious didn't know it. I mean, I talk a lot about subconscious and conscious, and I think it's because we hold things inside us. They change our outside workings, but they're changing our inner workings, and we don't always see that until it's done. I mean, I in the, in the book, I needed to eventually leave my job. And that's where I was trying to get toward. And I also needed to come to a place of acceptance that, you know, I wasn't going to have the family life with my um, extended family that I had thought I was going to have. And that, you know, as a parent also, I need to be honest to who I am. And in that way, I'm giving my children a more honest version of me and they can love me for who I really am, not for who I'm projecting to them. So you introduced the the book and the project is coming to terms with domesticity. Um, And I I think I'm curious a couple things about that. One is maybe like at what point in the project do you know like this is the project uh, that that's is it only sort of after the fact a little bit where you're like, oh, that's the summation of the book or, or at some point midway through? Um, and then also, I guess, just hearing all of us together and the last couple of days reading from our autofocus books, since all of us are like wrestling with figuring out our lives in different ways, which is kind of the nature of the program. And, and so maybe going hand in hand with when you figured out that that was the book, like what it means to figure out domesticity through writing about it? Um, Great question. Thank you. The funny story about this book, uh, to go back to my first three poetry books, I view them as a trilogy. Uh, Continental Breakfast, El Dorado Freddy's, and Flavortown are like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they're really restless, um, outward-looking explorations of of food culture, of American uh, Midwestern identity, and um, just the landscape. I I saw very little honest depiction outside of writers like Aaron Birch of the landscapes where I actually grew up, of the Applebee's and the the interstates and the suburbs. And so the first three books were an attempt to create a loving but critical portrait of that landscape. And so after spending so much time looking outward with my poetry, after I finished Flavortown, I was like, okay, I'm going to write an inward looking book. This is going to be about, I like, I, um, my son was born as these three books were coming out. I knew I was spending more time at home. I was very curious, uh, about the difficult process of becoming a father. And so I was like, I'm going to write an inward looking book. I made that decision in January of 2020. And then, you know, a mere two months later, we were all forced inside um, and like everybody had to reckon with their own domesticity in huge ways. And like not only 
was I a father, but I was like a father whose kid was always home. Like, uh, and I, I had to work from home. We all had to share the space in a really intense way. And that made the project much more um, surreal. And so a lot of the, the strangeness or the dreamlike quality of Picture Window came from the fact that I had already planned on working on uh, the, the domestic book. And I was doing my research and reading great poets like Marie Howe and like all these other poets of marriage and domestic life. And then it like it just kind of fell into my lap. Um, so like it ended up being as planned a book about domesticity, but in, in a much stranger way. Um, and then, of course, there was the whole long distance situation. So uh yeah, a little bit of a coincidence, but in general, um, I think sometimes I like I loosely have an idea of what I want to talk about, especially with poetry. I have like a general concept that becomes clarified as I write, um, and and um, like with Jewish American Dream, I was like, okay. And this is in process, so it still might change. I'm like, I want to write about Jewish American identity. Like, I want to apply this filter uh, that I've used to talk about the Midwest to my Jewish identity. And then it's like um, the Israel-Hamas war happened. And really, um, you know, uh, it's a very difficult time to be a Jew. But for like, fortunately and unfortunately, I have a lens to process it because now I can just like dive in and like write my way through it because I have the research. I have the poetic project. Um, and in some ways, it's helping me come to terms with like the horrors perpetuated by the Israeli state. Um, so, Yeah. And then the other question, can you repeat your other question? I think you answered both parts of it. Um, I wanted to ask Apollo, what was the what was the name of the final poem that you read? The um, Long Distance Relationship. Part of what I so love about Picture Window and love about you as a poet and so many of your poems is the sense of humor in them. And I think you're so great at at having like a funny poem that is is more complicated than quote unquote just funny. Right. Um and then in this uh, last poem that, that you read, Long Distance Relationship, um, and then you read it, I think you read it aloud at the reading yesterday for the first time. And I was curious, and I think it kind of knocked all of us out. Uh, and so I just wonder if, if it felt different when you were writing it, and then maybe paired with that, if it felt different to read something like that than something maybe more... Uh, humor base. Yeah, well I mean the way I structure readings and I think you you saw it with my reading for this episode is like the funniest poem is usually number 2 or early in the set. And like I'll open with a poem that acts as a bit of a thesis statement for the book I'm talking about and then um I like I peak in funny around poem 2 or 3 and then I gradually get more intense and serious and I think like uh, a huge inspiration for me is the novel Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. And an amazing thing he does in that book is he has these events that are mirrored that happen twice in the book. And the first time, they're very funny. And the second time, they're absolutely devastating. And I think the work of the the satirist is to like open us up, um, to peel us open with humor, and then have better access to our organs to like uh, uh, to, to create um, sentiment, feeling. Um, change and so i um i've really been thinking about the the use of humor um and um perhaps whether i'm using it as a, a like a, a crutch or it, what am i hiding behind when i write funny poems and like i don't think i'll ever not be a funny poet but um i do think about what i want to do with the project and how humor can be one tool to get the desired effect with the reader 
but yeah, I usually close with the sad ones. Like leaving, like knocking you over is definitely the point with the closers. Um, so I'm glad that happened. Holly, last night at the reading, you mentioned, you said it so much better than I could, but you mentioned something about how writing this book was a way to manifest meeting the daughter you gave up for adoption. And I was really interested in that because so often we hear that books need to just stand on their own as art. And there's all this debate about morals and fiction and people trying to ascribe certain ethics onto certain characters, which kind of removes the idea of use from a book. And I understand that point, and I think it's really important. But I'm also really interested in memoir or life writing as a way to shape your life. Like, not only are you writing your life, but you are also, like, trying to use the life writing as a turning point in your life. So there's a very specific purpose for that book in the world. Can you talk about arriving at that decision and what happened after the book came out? Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, so yesterday when I started to read, I introduced my book with a little anecdote that I wrote this book in hopes of one day meeting my daughter, and that was the whole point for it. And uh, last month, she recently turned 18, and she came to see me. And so um, I jokingly said that if I never sell another copy, I will be fine. But it wasn't a joke, because that's why this book exists. Um, and yeah, I do, I do think that writing for betterment is the reason I do it. Um, I was raised really religious, and so like always, I was like grasping for this like good enoughness. And now that I'm not religious anymore, I think writing is my way of always trying to evolve into a better person. And so, um, yeah, sometimes I write thinking about who I'd like to be. And I'm not there yet, but um, this is a way to get there. And I mean, it worked. It worked in this book. So I think it's definitely something that we can do and we can make art and we can make art that's becoming something. It doesn't have to be always an arrival. Sometimes it can be, you know, the working toward that. And then you also mentioned um, the decision to write this book to my daughter and how I arrived at that choice. And I don't know that I did. I think I just started experimenting, honestly. I think I just started writing things that were urgent. And that's what was urgent was letters. And I've been writing letters my whole life. I had pen pals when I was a kid. Um, and to me, it's that that specific audience, that one person that you want to say this one thing to. Um So it was the only way to write this book because it's the only way it ever would have been written. Otherwise, it would still all be locked away in my head. Um, But knowing that I had Grace as a potential audience one day, um, like a future version of her would read this. And I knew that. And I was writing these when she was 12 and when she was 13 and 14. And now she's 18 and she's been able to read it. So, yeah, I think it was just knowing that there was that person that I loved with all of me that I wanted to be able to say these things to is why I set up the book that way. All right, that was the Autofocus Books Holiday Special, featuring readings by Aaron Birch, Christine Langley-Mahler, Danny Kane, and Holly Pileski. If you're interested in checking out any one or some or all of these books, you can find them over at autofocuslit.com books. 
and for making it through this entire episode. I'll give you a little discount code, which will work until January 1st. That code is 2023 special, and it'll get you 20% off whatever you order. Again, that's 2023 special. All right. Hope your holidays go all right. And that you have a happy new year. Or close to it. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.